When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This episode of Clear and Vivid with Robert Sapolsky is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda. And this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. A huge percentage of people are capable of shocking themselves at how crummy their behavior can be in the right, unright circumstance and how heroically compassionate they could turn out to be in circumstances where they may not have expected it. Yeah, this... This capacity for extremes of pro-social and anti-social behaviors is just without precedent in the animal kingdom. Robert Sapolsky spent 8 to 10 hours a day every summer for 25 years on the plains of Africa in the company of baboons. And he came away from that experience with an amazing understanding of humans. It's always a joy to talk with Robert Sapolsky, and I've had that pleasure a couple of times on the television series Scientific American Frontiers. So I was very happy when he agreed to chat again on Clear and Vivid. We spoke via a video link between our Manhattan studio and Stanford University, where Robert is a popular professor. I'm so glad to be talking with you because you have studied your whole life things that interest me immensely and deeply. And I'm spending this part of my life working on these things like communication. And one of the most interesting examples of communication that is part of your life, I think, is when you were in the museum and you saw African dioramas. And the communication of the diorama, which I always thought was kind of sad and still and looked like a taxidermy shop, 
<laughs> you wanted to live in the dioramas. Is that true? Well, that shows you how sad and taxidermed <laughs> Brooklyn was at the time. <laughs> Being a kid, yes. Um, I don't know. I guess I didn't see the spider webs and stuff on those. <laughs> Carl Ackley. Carl Ackley was the explorer who was responsible for most of the taxidermed things in the African Hall of Museum of Natural History. Yeah, they they do look a little bit on the uh, antique side. But somehow but, it excited your imagination and you, you you kind of devoted your life from that moment on. What? How old were you when you got fascinated with those animals? I think I was about eight when I decided I wanted to be a primatologist. It was It was sort of a natural transition from the, you know, how many T-Rexes would it take to take down a brontosaurus kind of stage of childhood obsession. And then finally, at what point did you wind up actually being in Africa? Not the diorama, but the real Africa. The real, the real thing. It was a week after I graduated college. I went off at age 20 and landed in Kenya and started studying baboons. Baboons. And did you learn as much about people from studying baboons as you did about baboons? I suspect so. It certainly, well, my early years as a faculty member, it sure informed a lot during faculty meetings, trying to make sense of dominance displays and what the hierarchy was like. Um, but to an enormous extent, you realize how much we're on a continuum with all the other primates there. We do some extraordinarily unique things, but for the most part, it's doing extraordinarily unique things with the basic blueprint that we share with every other primate out there. And yet we seem to have some extension that does, at least in the opinion of a lot of us, make us different from our cousins. Do you share that, or, or do you think we're way more alike than we think we are? Well, one, one of the cliches is all species are unique, and some, some species are uniquier than others. And <laughs> yeah. Humans are certainly way up there in that regard. I think what one keeps seeing means we've learned more and more about we're not the only species that kills. We're not the only species that makes tools. We're not the only species with at least the rudiments of theory of mind, a sense of justice, empathy, all of that. I think what comes through is we're just like every other primate out there in terms of that basic building blocks. And we're utterly unlike them in terms of our ability to just abstract our behaviors, our feelings over space and time. By that, I mean we can do something that no primate on Earth could ever dream of, no other primate, which is we can kill a member of our species whose face we never see. We just press a button. Or for the right online dating, we can fall in love with somebody and we don't even know what they smell like. Right. That's <laughs> like no, no baboon would ever do that. And... We can feel moved by the plight of somebody on the other side of the planet and do something to try to make their life better. We, we can be incredibly upset about what happens to a fictional character. And we're sitting there and we have to say, no, actually, they're just pixels up on a movie screen. And we're capable of having these 
contradictory impulses toward one another. I, it, it, I, I hope to learn from you in our conversation a little bit more than I understand now, which is practically nothing, about <laughs> why we're so capable of cooperation and dominance at the same time, of nurture and torture. We very often, the same person can do both ends of that wide swing. What What is there in us that enables us to do it? Because it doesn't conform to our view of ourselves by and large. No, but I think a huge percentage of people are capable of shocking themselves at how crummy their behavior can be in the right, unright circumstance and how heroically compassionate they could turn out to be in circumstances where they may not have expected it. And yeah, this this capacity for extremes of jargon, our pro-social and anti-social behaviors, is just without precedent in the animal kingdom. Well, the key thing that's different there is how we go about recognizing relatives. And everything about the evolution of behavior is built around, among the key building blocks, this notion of kin selection. Animals behave in order to maximize the number of copies of their genes they leave in the next generation. And some of the time you do that by reproducing yourself as many times as possible. But some of the time you do that by helping close relatives who share genes with you to do that. So cooperation in like every social species out there is built along lines of kinship. So the critical question becomes, if you're a hamster, how do you figure out who's a whole sibling, who's a half sibling, who's a stranger? And it's done innately, instinctually. It's done with pheromones. It's done by odors. And there's a whole science to that. And sort of instinctual recognition of relatives is a common theme in lots of other species. We can't do that. We can't meet a cousin for the first time in our life and be able to smell that they're a second cousin and not a third cousin. We're, that's not one of the things we're good at as a primate. But what we're very good at, the way we figure out who counts as an us and who counts as a them, is rather than relying on instinct, we've got to think about it. And as soon as we have to think about it, we're subject into being manipulated into feeling more connected to some individuals than we actually are genetically, connected by culture, ideology, theology, all that sort of stuff, or feeling so unrelated to some other fellow humans that it hardly even counts as killing a human when we do that. And the mere fact that we have to think our way through and we're subject to symbolic manipulation as to who counts as an us or a them is where all the complexities come in. The complexities seem to be really on an enormous scale. Um, I think I've heard you say that when you're tracking someone's behavior, figuring out where the behavior comes from, you have to start with what was happening a second before the behavior, and then a whole chain of other things that have an influence on it, like hormones and genes, and you have to go all the way back into ancient and prehistory. And that seems like an enormous number of factors to figure out uh, leading to a behavior. But is that, does, am, I, am I on the right track with how you look at it? Um, 
Absolutely. You look at someone who's just done something wonderful and altruistic or brutal and savage or ambiguously somewhere in between, and like a classic human response we have is to, in effect, say, why did they do that just now? Mm. And when you ask that, you're asking something about what neurons in different parts of their brain did a fraction of a second ago. But you're also asking about what environmental stimuli in the previous seconds to minutes triggered those neurons. And you're also asking, what did hormone levels that morning have to do with making those neurons more or less sensitive to those triggers? And then you're often running and neural plasticity, how has experience changed those neurons in previous months? And then you're back to adolescence and childhood and fetal life, which has a huge amount to do with what sort of brain you're going to have as an adult, deciding whether or not you're going to do that critically wonderful or critically horrible thing. Then even further back, genes come in and culture because the way you were raised within minutes of birth reflects the culture your ancestors were coming up with centuries ago, what kind of ecosystems shaped those cultures. And then at the bottom of the barrel, why we're evolved into this kind of species instead of that kind. So if there are so many factors involved before you can figure out the source of a behavior, how can you possibly put them all together? There are so many branchings, it seems to me, that you have to take into account. Well, the mindless conclusion to all of this is we're complicated. Uh Like, that doesn't get us very far. Um, I'm increasingly convinced the much more, the most important conclusion from all of it is we're complicated, so you better be really sure and really careful and really cautious before you decide you understand why somebody did something, especially if that's something that you're judging harshly. It's like trying to judge how a movie got to its conclusion by watching only 30 seconds of it. (laughs) You're missing where all the influences came in. You said something once that struck me as something so important, I wrote it down immediately. You said, you can't reason with someone out of a position that they weren't reasoned into in the first place. That if they have a, I suppose you mean if they have a feeling connection to their position, and it's mainly the feeling that got them into that position, you're not going to change them or affect them much with logic. Absolutely. Because you have to address, I mean, it's kind of, Okay, somebody has a stance, they have an opinion, you disagree with it deeply, they feel something about economics or social policy that's totally in contrast to you. And how can they believe that? How can they think that? And the key thing is to figure out what circumstances brought them to that point. And those circumstances have far more to do with emotion than they do with cognition. I mean, huge predictors of people's political stances about social issues revolve around how anxiety-prone they are, how much having their hands dirty distresses them, how much sitting down in a seat that somebody else was sitting on and it's kind of warm and clammy, does that kind of creep you out or what? How much does ambiguity make you anxious versus making you excited? 
And it turns out those are hugely important predictors of people who wind up being social progressives versus social conservatives. Yeah, you remind me of uh, a study where people were presented with an unpleasant smell. Yes. And for the next few minutes, they were more conservative in their response to, to uh, questions. How did that work? Wonderful study came out of psychologists at Yale, uh, Paul Bloom and others, where you take people, in a sense, you give them a questionnaire about their political attitudes, about social issues, economic issues, geopolitical issues. And if they're in a room with a horrible smell of garbage in there, and it turns out you can get little, like, commercial vials of garbage smell. <laughs> to, to tidy up your home. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and even worse bodily odors than that. Um, it turns out if you put somebody in a room with a bad smell in it, uh, they tend to become more conservative about some social issues. does nothing to the geopolitical stances, the economic stances. What's that about? What is that Turns about? Out, Why would they do that? What's the rationale that's been proposed? There's a totally wonderful piece of neurobiology that helps explain that. It's a part of the brain called the insular cortex. If you're your basic, boring, off-the-rack mammal, what the insular cortex is about is telling you if you've just bitten into some disgusting piece of food. If it's rancid, if it's toxic, insular cortex reacts, triggers all these reflexes, you spit it out, you gag, maybe you throw up, you scrunch up your face. This is all part of this mammalian response to protect you from gustatory disgust, disgusting, toxic, spoiled food. And it turns out it works the same way in us and humans. You stick somebody in a brain scanner and you somehow persuade them to bite into this rancid whatever and insular cortex activates. We can do something fancier than that. You don't give the person something disgusting to eat. You just prompt them to think about eating a cockroach or <laughs> and you activate the insular cortex. Oh my, I just, just as when you said that, I just voted for Genghis Khan. <laughs> yes, they're proof in action, all of this was one big experiment on you, Alan. Well, what may, what's the connection between smelling something disgusting and exhibiting a more conservative attitude? I don't get the connection. Yeah. Okay, because that comes from the utterly amazing thing that the human insular cortex does. In addition to disgusting tastes and smells or thinking about disgusting ones, you tell somebody about some disgusting act the Nazis did this, the white supremacists did that, this is what happened in this massacre, this is something heartbreaking, Something, and the insular cortex activates in us. In humans, it also does moral disgust. And what that tells you is, you look at the activity of like a single insular cortical neuron, and you can't tell if it's just tasted some disgusting food or if it's contemplated some disgusting moral act. So it makes it makes a moral uh, evaluation, a moral judgment. And is that somehow linked to a conservative view? Because it seems to me that you could have you could be disgusted at things that a more liberal view would be disgusted by. And uh, so I don't see how you shift it over to a more conservative one. Can you explain that? Great. Yeah. Well, what you wind up seeing is we associate visceral disgust with moral disgust, with that's why something that's 
upsetting enough, makes us feel queasy, makes us feel sick to our stomach, makes us feel like puking. What you see in terms of the political stances is this utterly cool, great finding, which is on the average, social conservatives have a lower threshold for visceral disgust than do social progressives. Even studies looking at the number of cleaning products in the bathrooms of social progressives versus conservatives, and there's a difference, what you have is just on a visceral level, if you're very prone to finding all sorts of things to make you feel a little bit squeamish and a little bit off, and you're more prone to decide that them and their different behaviors rather than being cool or exciting or neutral, is that much more likely that you conclude is it's just kind of disgusting and it's wrong, wrong, wrong. What happens when you hit adolescence? I've seen now in my own family a couple of generations go through adolescence. And it seems to me that, generally speaking, their brains are controlled from outer space. Well, what you've got is, I mean, on a certain level, like all of adolescence could be explained by two neurobiological facts. The first one is that the emotional part of the brain, jargon, the limbic system, parts of the brain having to do with aggression, with lust, with love, with all that stuff. Regions like the amygdala, for example, the neurotransmitter dopamine, and another part that's very implicated. You've pretty much up to speed with your limbic system by the time you're early adolescent. The part of your brain that spends its time getting to the limbic system and saying, I know this seems like a wonderful idea, don't do it, you're going to regret it, believe me, believe me, (laughs) is the frontal cortex. And all of adolescence is explained by the fact that the emotional brain is going full speed there and the frontal cortex in humans isn't fully wired up until you're about 25 years old. So do you think that in terms of evolution, um, it wasn't a bad idea to let the young generation be novelty-seeking, to be adventurous, to take risks, uh, and maybe that's why the brain develops in that order. Uh, by the way, any any theory that says this is a good idea because it would have been good for evolution is suspicious, I think, because yes. you can make up a good theory about anything. We don't have the evidence to show us. Yes, the, the world of just-so stories. Exactly, I mean, yeah. You, you see... And adolescents are weird. It's the time in life you're most likely to mug an old lady, rob a liquor store, join some nationalist fascist group. It's the time in life where you're most likely to devote yourself to the well-being of strangers on the other side of the planet. It's the time of life you're most likely to like found a religion or a cult. It's it's one of emotional extremes. I think part of it is this very primate thing we do. Primates, when they hit adolescence, just get ants in the pants. They just get itchy. They just get so bored with, like, if they have to groom this damn monkey one more time that they've (laughs) groomed every day of their life, they're going to scream. And 
they get this itch to pick up and go. They're sick of this old, boring little town. They want to go see the world, or at the very least, the troop on the other side of the stream. And I've, I've seen this many times with my baboons. Like, a troop runs into the neighboring troop, and they're on either side of the stream of some stream and they all yell at each other for a while and they get bored with that and go back to eating and everyone's back to the usual and then you spot this little squirrely adolescent guy from your troop who's on the edge of the stream and he can't believe it different baboons look at all of them and he sits there for an hour and then goes back and then a week later his troop runs into this other troop and he goes down, he sits on the other side of the stream for 10 seconds, and anyone there who looks at him, he scampers back. And then a week later, he spends the afternoon on the other side, and it's just this, it's the most exciting thing. My God, different baboons, I'm getting out of here. We're going into a short break, and when we come back, Robert Sapolsky and I talk about empathy, where it comes from, why it's sometimes hard to keep up, and how to use it to break down the barriers between us and them, right after this. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Robert Sapolsky. What about empathy? When we began talking about communication, it seems to me, as I try to figure out how the best communication takes place, it seems to me that empathy is at the heart of it. If you're trying to communicate with somebody, if you don't know what they're going through while you're talking to them, you could be talking to a lamppost and having the same effect. Yep. So how does empathy happen in us? How does it develop in us? Where did it come? Why do we have any more empathy than other, other primates? And it, or if so, how did we get it? Yep. Where you see the building blocks of it and like people have spent whole career is looking at sort of the emergence of empathy and compassion, et cetera, in kids. What you see early on is this first landmark, this jargon theory of mind, the first time you understand that somebody else has something going on in their head that's different from what you have. And chimps can do this under motivated circumstances. Human kids reliably start doing that around age three or four or so. And that's a first building block to somebody has different thoughts than you. Somebody else has different feelings than you. They can have bad feelings when I feel good. And that's not sufficient because if all you've got at that point is an extremely good capacity for reading other people's emotions and thoughts, 
if it does nothing more than that and that's where it stops, you've just described a really good sociopath. Mm. They have amazing theories of mind in terms of being able to manipulate other people. It's something about that process of the first time somebody else's pain is your pain. And again, we've got a part of the brain, a different part called the anterior cingulate, that activates if somebody's poking your finger with a pin, and it activates if you're looking at the finger of a loved one being poked. Do you have to have already developed a certain level of empathy for your to feel the pain when somebody else's finger is poked, or is that is that one of the building blocks of developing empathy? I think that's one of the things that naturally emerges. If it doesn't at all, you're on the path to sociopathy. Mm -hmm. Um, What you get is like typical landmarks when kids first get distressed at somebody else's pain, when for the first time you can show their heart rate increases, when they would first give up a cookie to somebody else to share with them because the other person unfairly doesn't have one. When kids are beginning to get first egalitarian thinking, things of that sort, where it, of course, winds up being incredibly significant in explaining sort of our history as a species is the fact that not everybody registers with us to the same degree and not everybody's pain counts as much and development is an awful lot about being trained within the context of your family your culture your particular temperament and threshold as to who's going to count as an us and who's a them whose pain matters to you why are some of us having trouble with being empathic. I mean, I I must say, I'm curious about it. I notice that the more empathic I am, the less I find other people annoying. So it's helpful for me to be more empathic. But I even have developed exercises to try to help myself be more empathic. But if I don't do them for a while, I start to lose this sense of observing what the other person is feeling or caring about it. And I'm wondering why I lose it. Is, do you think stress has a problem? I know stress is important to you. Um, this was a, a wonderful group at McGill University. Um, Jeffrey Mogul and colleagues who've shown sort of the rudiments of empathy in lab rats and sort of the bits of it in humans where they have sort of an experimental model. And you see something really striking, which looks so familiar, which is a rat can be empathic and respond physiologically with distress to another rat in pain, the same way that we humans can be for another human, but it depends on who the rat is. If it's a rat that they know, that they like, a cage mate, if it's a rat who's genetically from the same strain as them, you get this empathic response. If it's a strange rat, you don't. In other words, even for a rat, not everyone's pain is equal. So what you wind up doing, this was a a collaboration I did with that group, speculating that maybe this has to do with what do strangers do to you if you're a social beast that makes you feel a little stressed. And you secrete this class of stress hormones called glucocorticoids, the human version is cortisol. And there are a bunch of reasons to think that it might work this way. What we did was we took a bunch of rats in those circumstances and you give them a drug that blocks glucocorticoid release for a while, 
and they suddenly become more empathic to strange rats who are in pain. To strange rats? Yes, and then best of all, with the study, you take your college freshman volunteers and you put them in some circumstance where you see more of an empathic response for individuals you just interacted with in a fun way for 30 minutes before the test versus for a stranger. And you do the same thing. You give them the same drug and you block the glucocorticoid release and you see more empathy for strangers than you would have otherwise. In other words, part of our narrowing of empathy in scary circumstances and novel circumstances, all of that is it turns out the stress hormone works in the brain to narrow our focus as to whose pain matters, as to who counts as in us. I suppose an increase of empathy could enable you to bridge the gap between what you regard as us and them. But there's a problem, it seems to me. Empathy is not the same as doing something about the feeling you have. Yep. Tell me about that difference as you see it. Um, this is an incredibly important thing. Your degree of empathy, just how much you're feeling somebody else's pain, is not a particularly good predictor of who's going to actually step out of the line there and do something compassionate and scary and difficult. There's a huge gap between the two. And people like Paul Bloom have wonderfully sort of elucidated this contrast Empathy cannot be a virtue in and of itself. Yeah, we had a wonderful conversation on this podcast, Paul Bloom and I, and it was fun to talk with Paul about empathy because he wrote that book, uh, Against Empathy. Against Empathy, yeah. yeah. Where he, I mean, he's gotten a lot of grief for it, but it's because people confuse merely feeling somebody else's pain is not sufficient. Right. And it turns out, if you are feeling somebody else's pain so much that your blood pressure is increased and your heart is racing and your sympathetic nervous system is making your stomach clutch and you're feeling queasy and all of that, that's not a predictor for somebody who's going to step out of the crowd and do the brave interventive well, on thing. On the contrary, it's, it's equivalent to burnout. Exactly. And in a sense, translating that into physiology, you look, somebody el you look at somebody else's pain and you break the world into people whose hearts start racing at that point versus people who don't. The ones whose hearts race are the ones who are feeling the pain so much that the main concern becomes their own pain and feeling the pain, and they turn inward and don't act compassionately. On a more sort of cognitive behavioral level, if the main point of somebody else's pain is you sit there and say, oh my God, this must be so awful for them, that's a predictor of a compassionate act. On the other hand, if you sit there and say, oh my God, it would be so awful if this were happening to me, <laughs> that's the predictor of the person who says, this is just way too upsetting and I'm going to change the channel now. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. Has, has, has that been tested? Yep, absolutely. And wonderful showing empathy comes with a lot of different flavors and not to not to get all buddhist on you here because i i couldn't possibly be further from my basic temperament but a sort of detachment um is kind of a prerequisite if you're feeling somebody else's pain so viscerally that all you're feeling is hey this hurts 
your main concern becomes what's the easiest way to stop that hurt, not to make their life better, not to reform societal infrastructure. It's to just decide, you know what, that's not my problem. It's their fault. Somebody else will take care of it. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to go back and see what I'm going to have for lunch now. So if the way to make things better for people who are suffering is to get a group of us who are willing to act on our empathy, sounds like we have to find ways to encourage ourselves and others to have that detachment that you just talked about. How would we go about such a thing? Well, I think one of the first steps is to dissociate sort of the empathy that leads to actual compassionate acts, to dissociate it from the easy markers. Ooh, someone who looks like me someone who eats like me, who prays like me, who adorns their body the way I do, somebody somebody who is feeling the same sort of pain that I went through, and I know how, often, how awful that was, to train people to be able to not require similarity mm. or easy us categorizations, to train people to be able to recognize the pain in someone whose values are just unrecognizable from where you come from. And that's not easy. Do you think there's any value in pointing out the similarities that do exist but that seem not to exist because there's so much themness about them that nevertheless you can find, even though even though we voted polar, polar opposites, uh, into office or tried to get those in, the polar opposites into office, we nevertheless share many things. We share love of children. We share um, a love of country. Uh, we, we believe in fairness. There are so many ways we could say to one another, you don't have to like them. You have to uh, just notice that we're, we do belong to the same tribe. Yeah. And it comes in unexpected ways. This is exactly where this notion of you can't reason somebody out of something they weren't reasoned into in the first place comes in. You don't sit down and like tell somebody about all the shared values you have with this person who you would otherwise consider them and all the ways in which they actually have the same feelings. about. You show them a picture of the person like, giggling with their kid mm. or like holding a puppy or like smiling because they've just like tasted a piece of food that they love. And that's, that's the visceral level. You, you discover that you and them loved the same game when you were little, that you both loved Twister, that you both did this. You, you find those moments of, whoa, I mean, a prerequisite for truly recognizing the similarities with this other person is really emotionally recognizing that they are an autonomous, different person there. Wow. And instead of pointing out intellectually what you share in common, you actually go through some kind of experience together, even in memory or in pictures. Or, or actually sharing a meal together and loving the taste of it together. That can bring you together, apparently, from what you say, 
better than an intellectual listing of the ways in which you're similar. And the gut feeling is, and just to even say the gut feeling turfs it into this whole world of not reasoning people out of things they weren't reasoned into, to the extent that we're functioning on gut feelings, the gut feeling is it's these unexpected little bits and pieces of things. I mean, even on the level of, you know, living in San Francisco as I do, like the city is like flooded with homeless people and homeless people who by now are often homeless, working poor because of the costs of rent that have skyrocketed here, things of that sort. And like you go through an area that's overrun with homeless people and my God, what's happening and all the ways in which our visceral, bristly, porcupine quills of like yuck are being activated there. And the knowledge that one of those people probably had a supporting lead in their high school play. <laughs> Most of those people at some point or other had a group of people sing happy birthday to them. Most of those people opened up like a Christmas present at some point and where they were so excited that they could barely stand it that they were eight years old before something went really wrong or before all the bits of rotten luck they had caught up enough that this is where they are now before they got into drugs and wound up on the streets. Like, any of that, that, I mean, just, if if one could see every homeless person who as a child got to blow out the candles on a cake and was so happy and felt so safe in the world that they, like, couldn't even believe it, if you could see that they went through that as well, that would be transformative. It's very, very reassuring to hear you say that. You you moved me. That was very nice. I We unfortunately have to bring our conversation to a close now. But before we do, we always ask seven quick questions. I hope you're willing to come up with seven quick answers. It's, okay. it's painless. Number one, what's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? why there's no free will and why you really cannot judge anybody else's actions. I think you were explaining that to me once in one of our conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do that to everyone these days. How do you handle a nosy person? Um, Let's see. I probably passive-aggressively invent an entire false history for myself. (laughs) You've actually done that? (laughs) I probably have, I don't know, claiming to be the long-last Anastasia Romanov or something like that. (laughs) Okay, next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You probably first spend a whole lot of time figuring out why those facts are so important to them Uh, and take it from there. Oh, that's interesting. Now, here are a couple of our old favorite questions. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? (laughs) I would say I was giving a talk once about my baboons and baboon social behavior and on how social affiliation is good for baboons, stress hormone levels. And somebody said, don't you think it's kind of weird that you spent decades studying that while living alone in a tent? (laughs) And 
Yeah, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> okay. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, I don't know. Maybe hug them and say it's going to be okay. <laughs> That's probably not going to work, though, but at least like, it may break the stream of consciousness. Now, here's a couple of questions, the last two that have been suggested by our listeners. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone who you don't know at a dinner party? Ask them what stuff are they most excited about. That's what I do. That's I ask them what their passion is. Yeah, that's interesting. Then, then, then they're on, right? They're, they're going. They're on. And truly interesting people are always obsessed about something and something that never in your lifetime would you consider like geckos or Viking coins or who knows what it is they're obsessed over or the 43 Cleveland Indians or like some, what's, what's the most interesting stuff you obsess over out there? Okay, here's the last question. What gives you confidence? Confidence in human future? Well, however you would interpret it. I, I always thought of it as personal confidence, but uh, you pick it. Um, well, one day I'll figure out how to feel personally confident, but in the meantime, <laughs> okay, just worrying about humanity. <laughs> right. So do you, that's interesting, you do feel confident about humanity? Yeah, and it's against every bit of basic wiring I have. I am by nature a total pessimist. And nonetheless, when you sit and look at stuff we're learning and what an awful planet this was two, three hundred years ago, and people who count as deserving our protection now that never even used to register, I don't know, there's, there's a little bit of room to feel confident that things are going to get better as we all swim amid the rising water levels in the middle of the United States as the oceans <laughs> come in and cover us. Well, in spite of that, you've made me feel confident about the future of humanity, and I'm grateful to you. One more wonderful conversation that I've had with you. Thank you so much, Robert. Well, always a pleasure, Alan. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Aldous Center, please visit aldacenter.org. If this podcast has whetted your appetite for more of Robert Sapolsky, you can read his recent book, which is now in paperback and called Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. And check out Robert Sapolsky on YouTube, where you can find a wonderful TED Talk and courtesy of Stanford University, an entire series of lectures on human behavioral biology. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter 
at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Pat Metheny, one of the world's top jazz improvisers. To me, listening is the key. And whether that manifests itself in in the realm that I deal in or, or in our everyday interactions, the way that improvising, as we put it in this exalted sense of a of a guy who's standing up on stage and playing with a bass player and drummer, connects to just listening is central. Pat Metheny and I compare notes on improv, connection, and creativity. Next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>